Alright, so continuing our talk on uh, impeccability. Kind of continuing that, I know our brother John asked about the application that we should draw from it, and hopefully I'll be able to give some of those uh, applications today. But I do want to kind of go back to what we talked about, about Christ's sinlessness, his inability to sin. I kind of want to revisit that a little bit. And as I said, I'll be drawing quite a bit from William Shedd's uh, work on impeccability, which, as I said before we uh, began here, is very excellent. Um, even though Jesus, uh, if we accept impeccability, he was unable to sin, even if he was unable to sin, he was temptable. He was temptable. You know, the Bible says in Book James that God uh, cannot be tempted. Right? So then how do we square that Jesus being God that he can tempted? Well, because Jesus is also human. Right? Jesus is also human. So, quoting Shen from his uh, dogmatic theology, he says, Temptability depends upon the constitutional susceptibility. While impeccability depends upon the will. So as far as his natural susceptibility, both physical and mental, was concerned, Jesus Christ was open to all forms of human temptation, except those that spring out of lust or corruption of nature. So, basically, uh, Jesus was susceptible to temptation because him having a human nature... That made him susceptible to temptation. It made him able to be tempted as far as that's concerned. Right? Because God can't be tempted, but him having a human nature, he he can be. He continues, Chet continues. The human nature was the avenue to temptation. That's why we're making it. But the divine nature so empowered and actuated the human, the divine will so strengthened the human will that no conceivable stress of temptation could overcome Jesus Christ and bring about the apostasy of the second avenue. So, the human nature was the avenue by which Jesus was uh, tempted. Now, because he was impeccable, sin had no foothold or power over him. All sin's attacks were from the outside, not the inside. So, as God, his nature was impeccable, and that's, that's a huge difference between him and us. Right? Because what do we all have? Sin nature. We have a sin nature, right? So, we have a sin nature, and so our temptations arise from inside. the inside. We have a traitor inside the gates, as it's been said. Right? We have an enemy in the camp, and gentlemen, that enemy is us. Christ didn't have that. Right? He was born without sin. So as such, he didn't have that. Uh, I quote Roman McCoon in his uh, Systematic Theology. He, he mentions Hebrews 4.15. Let's turn there for a second so we should look at this. Hebrews 4.15. This passage is, of course, uh, very familiar and very comforting to us, as it, as it should be. Um, would somebody like to read Hebrews 4.15? Thank you. Thank you. Hebrews 4.15. 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 Hebrews 4.15.
who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Thank you, brother. So, the idea here, McCoonan and others talk about this, Shedd talks about this too, but the idea here without sin doesn't mean that he uh, was tempted in all matter, but yet he didn't sin, he didn't give in. That's not what the point of the text is here. What Hakun uh, says, uh, quote, chorus, uh, which is the Greek word there, means separately, apart, without, except for. Jesus was tempted as in the rest, as is the rest of humanity, except in this one area of sin. This must mean a sin nature or the internal disposition or bias to sin. There was no sin nature in Jesus with which temptation could connect to or to which it could appeal. And then now I'll talk uh, about Shed. He says, quote, It's necessary to notice the difference between the temptability of Christ and that of a fallen man. Right? You and I. <laughs> For while there's a resemblance, there's also a dissimilarity between them. Continuing uh, that Shed, continuing on. Christ's temptations were all of them sinless. But very many of the temptations of a fallen man are sinful. That is, they are the hankering. Don't you love when in a theological work you use the word hankering? Uh, a hankering and solicitation of forbidden and wicked desire. Uh, end quote. And then he references, and we're going to turn there. Turn to James 1.14. Show you this. James 1.14. Uh, he references James 1.14 as an example of being in his words. Sinfully tempted. James one fourteen. Somebody volunteer to read that. Yeah. So in temptation. In, in many temptations that we have, we are, what, what does the text say? We are what? Tempted. Right. We're tempted. We're lured away by our own sinful, our own desire. The idea of desire here being sinful. So when we're tempted, many, many times, in the temptation itself, we are already in sin. Uh, Shed gives an example, and I'll just use his. He talks about the pastor is tempted uh, to preach. And I remember all the details of it, but he's tempted to preach, and he wants to preach basically out of pride to get attention. Right? This is this is a temptation that is very common. Um, don't ask me how I know that. Um, now, even if his point is, is that even if the pastor doesn't go through with the sermon, but he you know, wanted to because he wanted to be proud of me much of, did he already sin? Yes. Yes. He already did. Jesus was never tempted in such a way where he was tempted out of sinful desire because he had we see the difference there. That's a huge one. And I think that's what uh, Hebrews 
is, is talking about there. So that, those are some, some differences there. I want to kind of go and kind of talk a few minutes about how glorious Christ's impeccability is. I think a huge point about the fact that Jesus was unable to sin is that it proves to us that he's truly God. Because God cannot what? Sin. He can't sin. And the fact that Jesus, under the most severe temptation, did not give in, right? Was it possible for him to give in? Proves with the Old Testament, one of the main, uh, major arguments in the Old Testament is the fact that the Davidic, the son of David, the Messiah, is God himself. I think that it's not outside the realm of possibility, brothers, that the temptations are here to show us, to make his argument for the divinity of Jesus Christ. That's a huge point. Not exclusive, but a major point. Second, Christ's impeccability is glorious because it proves that he is the righteous, divine Messiah. The perfect son of David, for whom righteous Israel was waiting. Let's talk about a, a few verses here. We go to the Psalm. We go to the Psalm. Go to Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7. Psalm 2, 6 and 7. Someone read that part. And they get ready to flip to Psalm 110. Psalm 2, 6 and 7. So, right, the nations are raging, right? They're trying to throw off the plans that God has, right? They're trying to, they're taking counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. And then God says, as for me, I've installed my king on my holy hill, right? Which is Zion, which is Jerusalem. So, he, he is the righteous king who's being installed, as opposed to all of these other wicked kings of whom are trying to rage against God. Let's go to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. I mean, you could just kind of, this, this whole psalm is just excellent. Just take a look at this. Let's just look at it here. Psalm 110, Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, so Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Right, right there is a place of tremendous power. He's at the right hand of God, right? Which shows his equality. Which shows his equality with God. Only somebody who is pure and holy could sit at God's right hand. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of the earth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So now he's a priest. Now he goes between God and the people. But as we know, he's not a priest like a Levitical priest, right? Who has to give offerings for his own sin. And not even Melchizedek was perfect, but he's a priest of an altogether different 
time. So you, you see how, how exalted this Messiah is. Let's go to Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 42, uh, verse, let's look, read verse 1 and then verse 4. Would somebody read that? Isaiah 42, verse 1 and then verse 4. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not throw faith or be disturbed, but he will establish and the coastlands wait for his law. Okay. The servant is in whom God's soul delights. And he will not what? Grow faint. He won't run out of threat. He won't be, he won't give up. Until justice is established. Isaiah 49, verses 5 through 10. Let me just, uh, we don't have time to go through all this, but let me just, uh, jump out here. Oh, Isaiah 49, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His what? Holy One. Right. Isaiah 50. Let's go to Isaiah 50. This this one is uh, this one is really great. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of skip ahead. There's so many passages we can go to, but this one is really kind of critical. Isaiah 50, verses 5 through 9. Let me just read this. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not what rebellious. I turned not backwards. Who in the history of mankind could say this? Only one I know of. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. How many years was this before the crucifixion? Pretty incredible, isn't it? But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. How descriptive it is, right? In Jesus' encounter with Satan. Who gave up? Satan gave up. Right? Who wore out like a garment? Not the Son of God. The devil. And there's so many that you could go to. You can go to like the other service song, uh, the other passages about the prophecy of the Messiah. Isaiah seven fourteen, right? Called Emmanuel, right? God, which is God with us. Isaiah nine six through seven, he's the mighty God. I mean, when you talk about God, you kind of incorporate in there holiness, don't you? Right? Isaiah eleven one through five, Isaiah twelve six. Uh, we'll go to just one Jeremiah passage, and then we'll kind of we'll move on. Uh, Jeremiah 33, verses 14 uh, through 16. Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. Someone read Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16.
is the righteous. He's the Lord our righteous. Isaiah 53, verse 11, uh, talks about out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. The glory of the impeccability is that there is no possibility for him to fail. He sees the promise that he's the Holy One. God said it. And then he's purely righteous and he did Yes. could not succumb in any way to the temptations that were put in his path. That's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? That he could. It was impossible. Again, think about all the sons of David that came after David. And what does the Old Testament go out of its way to point out? Well, one way to put it, yeah. But God leaves no doubt here. There is no question He is the Messiah. There's nobody else coming. There's no other plan B. This is it. Get on or get off. Shed, going back to Shed and his uh, conversation and impeccability, he gives three reasons. One, Quote, the suffering involved in his temptations was a part of his humiliation and satisfaction for sin. So, his argument, his, his point out here is that part his temptations were part of his humiliation and his suffering that he had to endure. Okay. Number two, quote, in submitting the two temptation, Christ sets an example to his disciples. 
of constancy and obedience and resistance to evil, end quote. He references Hebrews 12, 2 through 3. That's the look unto Jesus passage. And then he continues with a marvelous point. Let me just read this extended quote to you. Quote, the fact that Christ was almighty and victorious in his resistance does not unfit him to be an example for imitation to a weak and sorely tempted believer. Because our Lord overcame his temptations, it does not follow that his conflict and success was an easy one for him. His victory cost him tears and blood. Skipping uh, down. Because an army is victorious, it by no means follows that the victory was a cheap one. Continuing down. The physical agony of the martyr is not diminished in the least by the strength imparted to him by God to endure it. The fire is as hot and the pain as great in his case as in that of an unbeliever. This is, this is a great line here. Divine grace does not operate like chloroform and deaden pain. Christ, uh, continuing on, Christ's human nature, while it was supported and strengthened by the divine, was for this very reason subjected to a severer strain than an ordinary human nature is. Again, he took more temptation than you will ever meet in your entire life. And because he was supported by the divine, he could endure more. And he endured it all. And, and think about this, guys. We're, we're so used to it. We're so used to it just kind of ever being present with us, right? I mean, you were born in it. But think about him. He never knew it. He never knew what it was to be tempted, right? He's God. You can't tempt God. Him being with his Father in, in eternity, past, right? In, in divine, sinless fellowship. And then he puts on flesh. And then he's accosted by all the wickedness of this world. Think about what that would be like. Right? There are some sins in God's grace, I would hope it men, that when you hear of it, it it's so like it's so evil and, and beyond the wickedness that God by his grace has kept you from that you're repulsed by it. Every sin is like that for him. And yet. He rejected them all. He had that traitor inside, right? The house saying, ah, what in it? Everything. But just to think about the tremendous amount of evil and out of costing to his own soul. There's something to, something to think about there. Christ can relate to our sins and weaknesses not because he understands how difficult they can be because he could have succumbed to them, but because he endured their full force <laughs> and he defeated them. Quote um, Donald McLeod in his book on the person of Christ. 
when he's talking about the temptation in the uh, to let the cup pass from him, so this is not the temptation proper, this is in the garden. Um, he says, quote, he rose with invincible resolution to face damnation and anathema. From that point onwards, there was not a fault. We must be careful not to misconstrue the effect of Jesus' sinless integrity at this point. Far from a meaning, far from meaning a shorter, painless struggle with temptation and involved in protracted resistance. Precisely because he did not yield easily and was not like us an easy prey, the devil had to deploy all his wiles and use all his resources. The very fact that he was invincible meant that he endured the full force of temptation's ferocity until hell shrunk away, defeated, and exhausted. Against us, a little temptation suffices. Against him, Satan found himself forced to push himself to his limits. What, what we read about is Satan giving almost everything he's got, and Jesus beats him down. And Satan shrinks away the defeated foe. That's something we can pull from these temptations. And we can rejoice in our great hero. And I would say this, too. Here, here's another application. You know, the Bible makes a great deal about the fact that we're united with this king. Right? We're saved by our union with this Christ. And one day, we will become like him. He will make us like himself. Amen. Incapable of sin. Philippians 3, 20-21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then, of course, the great golden chain of redemption in Romans 8, 29-30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, people will be like him. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So I think that while Jesus was incapable of sinning due to his nature as, as the God, he, re- he did rely upon the Spirit's leading. And he and power to defeat Satan in his temptation to demonstrate without a doubt that he was the divine Messiah. Any questions, guys, on impeccability or anything we, before we move on into the temptations? You know, even though Jesus was incapable of sinning, we do get some hope from him, right? The fact that he didn't give up, and he is our encouragement that we need to still stop sin. Young men, you know, you're built to fight battles. Men are built to fight. The problem is that we choose all the wrong battlefields. Or we abdicate our responsibility to fight. You have a fight in yourself every day. <laughs> you want to fight? Fight that. You get led astray. All these other distractions, except the war 
that within. And the war that was out, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Take hope from our Savior that he, in his battle, couldn't fail. And he demonstrated that he didn't. And that we draw strength from him and the Spirit and the fact that even when you think that you could not overcome your sin and that you'll never get past it, guess what? Jesus didn't fail. Jesus overcame. Jesus conquered. He died. He was buried and rose again. God accepted his sacrifice. And one day, someday, you will ultimately be victorious over sin because you will not be capable of sinning anymore. Amen. That should make us leap out of bed in the morning. Lord, help me leap out of bed in the morning. So think about it. Any other questions or comments? So, Jake, yeah. It doesn't mean that he's sanctified, right? It just means that he's like he endures it, he overcomes it, he's presented like he's he's the perfect one, right? Like he's it, it, he had to endure suffering and temptation in order for him to be our high priest to complete his work as the Messiah. So yeah, we should emphasize the fact that yeah, he did have weakness and he did rely on his father and his affection, his will, right, was to do everything that God wanted him to do. Yeah, we have to hold both of those things up, absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. We don't want to diminish the struggle because it was. It was a huge struggle. I mean, you don't look at the garden. 
right? I mean, look at the Garden of Gethsemane. No one can say that Jesus didn't struggle. My, my goodness. My goodness. Yeah, we have to hold both and try to... The Word presents the facts to us, right? We have to use our best uh, our best judgment and the Spirit and each other to try to make, make it all work, right? That's, that's theology. That's what that is. Yeah. Did you have your hand up, Michael? Yeah. Yeah. Um, started. So Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4. Alright, so um, we've read through these a couple times already. I think we'll, we'll skip that as far as this uh, point it goes. But let's um, let's kind of dive into it here. Let's kind of break these down in the next few minutes as we've got. Okay, so the temptation. So all three accounts of the temptation in Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4 all start off with how Jesus got to the wilderness, right? Because where did we just like last leave Jesus? Being baptized in the Jordan, right? That's where he was, right? And then, um, and it shows, and Mark actually kind of tells us the temptation happens when. What's the I word that he uses? Immediately. Yeah, this is a, a word Mark uses a lot. I mean, it's like, you know, he, he's kind of a fast-paced kind of guy. Um, yeah, he uses immediately quite a bit. So yeah, immediately after the baptism, he ends up in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How does he get there? The Spirit led him, right? The Spirit led Jesus there. This is not just kind of like, Oh, hey, you know, I think I might just take a jaunt uh, to the wilderness because, hey, I like, I like the desert and I like barren places. Um, no. 
he was uh, led there. I'm looking for my note page, and I think I lost it, but that's all right. Um, it's here somewhere. Don't bother to take it. So remember, we talked about last time. Uh, I know I referenced Blomberg and his commentary on Mark and Archie France and, and uh, Blomberg on Nappy France on Mark. Basically, how we should kind of look at this positively speaking. Because the word tempt here, right, going back to the, the Greek definition, can mean to tempt, but it also can mean to test. Right? And while Satan could be using this, and is probably using it to tempt, no, no doubt, no question, God's using this to test. Not to, not because the outcome is uncertain, but because precisely that it is. To prove that Jesus won't fail. Right? That, that Jesus will not fail like all of his fathers did before him. That the first Adam, of whom, right, he's the anti-type, that he won't fail like Adam did. So the Spirit leads him there for a purpose. Now how long was Jesus tempted by Satan? What does the text say? Forty days. Yeah, he wasn't just tempted at the end, right? He was tempted throughout. Look at Mark here. Right? Verse 13. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And Luke 2. Luke 4, verse 2. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So the devil tempted him, not just at the end, but throughout all 40 days. He was in a, a, a very long, protracted struggle with uh, with Satan. Now, I want to point out something really interesting. Look at Mark. Any, any interesting descriptor in Mark that you don't see in Matthew and Luke? Now, I heard somebody say that. Say it again. Yeah, Jeremy. Yeah, wild animal. What's going on there? Wild animals are a sign of desolation, desolation and judgment in the Bible. Uh, I, I think it's literally true that he's with the wild animals, but they're, they're a sign of, of desolation and judgment. We'll just look at a few passages here on that. Turn to uh, Jeremiah 50. Jeremiah 50, verses uh, 39 and 40. This is near the end of the book of uh, Jeremiah. This is uh, this is a against comes. This is a prophecy judgment on Babylon. So we read verses uh, thirty nine and forty. Okay. Therefore, wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon, and ostriches shall dwell in her. She shall never again have people, nor be inhabited for all generations. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities, declares the Lord, so, so no man shall dwell there, and no son of man shall sojourn in her. Right? Ezekiel 5, 17. I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. 
And then interestingly enough, turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. Someone read that. Examples of wild beasts as signs of God's judgment. And Jesus is in a wilderness with wild beasts. I wonder why Mark makes a point of this. Well, let's go to one more passage Ezekiel 34. This is a passage that talks about uh, God pronouncing judgment on Israel's shepherds uh, because they don't feed their sheep. They. Uh, they mistreat their sheep, they slaughter their sheep, they, they abuse their sheep, they feed themselves. Uh, Ezekiel 34, verses 20 through 25, you have a, a turn before this where God is going to judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, and God's going to be a shepherd. Now read verses 22 through 25. Someone read that for me. This is good stuff. Ezekiel 34. Yeah, yes, well, go ahead. I will wish you might walk and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between the sheep and the sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, he shall feed them, and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be the prince among them. And I am the Lord, I have spoken. Verse 25. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. So, some some people believe that this is talking about literally David. I'm sympathetic to that. I don't believe that's the case. I think the word David here is being used to point out David's son. David will be prince, and he and the covenant's going to be made, and who's banished? The wild beasts are banished. So, you know, you use the term wild beast. I know it's Hebrew, and I know the difference in the language, but the idea is, is when you see wild beasts, the astute reader might be thinking back to this promise that here comes David's son right in the middle of the wild beast. Right in the middle of, of judgment, and he's going to start doing his great work to save his people. Right in the middle of the turmoil, right in the middle of the judgment, he's going to bring salvation. And that he will banish the wild beasts from the Alright, um, moving on. Um, fasting. How long did Jesus fast? 40 days, right? Okay. 40 days. And what were its effects? What did, what, did the text, what did the text say? After 40 days or 40 nights? He was hungry. Yeah, that's an understatement. Um, he was hungry. Jesus is physically very weakened, isn't he? Right? You, you don't eat for 40 days and you see what happens. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> unless the Lord tells you to do that and even then be wise and even then think about it. But the point is, is that Jesus is very weakened, right? 
And if there's any point to where physically he would be and mentally, right, because Satan, he's temptable through his human nature. If there's any point where Jesus would be vulnerable, don't you think this would be it? Yeah, I think that this would be it, that Satan strikes, right, at the, at the weakest, at the weakest point. Boy, isn't that true. Yeah, not easy to ask, because you all know. Satan, he's a master strategist. He knows when to, to really attack it. And uh, others have talked about basically how like deep temptations, it's been said that, you know, that basically these last three temptations are kind of like the final, like, the final, like, the escalated temptations, right? These are the big guns that Satan pulls out on. I think that would be, that would be true. Now, one thing we want to address, and then we'll kind of close out, is um, the order of the temptation. Now, if you look, there's a different... Now, you know, Mark here, he doesn't talk about any of the temptations at all, does he, right? That he just tempted. But Matthew and Luke, what do you notice in the difference between the temptations? Specifically, on this three. What's number two in Matthew's list? The temple, right? Jesus uh, being tempted to cast himself off the temple. What's number two on Luke's list? The kingdom temptation, right? So why are they different? You know, what? Why are they uh, different? Now, Matthew and Luke, let's just just say right now, don't contradict. Notice that Luke doesn't say that this temptation happened first, and then after that, this one happened, and after that, this one happened. Right? He doesn't give any sort of temporal time marker. Matthew does. He uses, uh, for example, after the first temptation, right? He's got loaves of bread, and he answers the scripture, which we'll talk about next week. Then the devil took him. Right? And then, in Matthew later on, you have the term again. Right? So the transition. Matthew uses time markers. Luke uh, doesn't. Daryl Block talks about his commentary in Luke that uh, he's got a, uh, there's like a specific purpose for why he thinks that uh, Jesus is, uh, or I'm sorry, Luke is, is doing this. He, quote, Luke has a theological motive for his arrangement. For Luke, Jerusalem is the climactic uh, locale of conflict in Jesus' life. Luke's rearrangement places the emphasis on the Jerusalem temple. Temptation is the decisive one. So he thinks that basically the point is that Luke arranges it because the crisis, the conflict is at the temple. And that's why Luke puts that last emphasis to it. That makes sense? I think Matthew um, is making the point uh, he's bringing them chronologically. Right? He's, he's doing them uh, chronologically. Does that make sense that uh, jive with everybody? Do you guys see that point there? Uh, also, Bob points out like when Jesus ends the temptation and Matthew just be gone to say, right? He calls that a summary dismissal. So, like, it would be kind of weird if Jesus said at the end of the kingdom's temptation, be gone, Satan, and then he hung around for one more. 
Right. Well, I think Matthew is, is chronological here. Now, don't let that fool you because sometimes in the Gospel of Rapture, Matthew's not chronological at all. That he arranges death, he arranges the events of Christ's life in his way to make his point. But his point is not to give a chronological record unless he intends to. That make sense? Alright, any questions or, or comments on any of that before we uh, end in prayer and um, prepare our hearts for worship? Any questions on any of this? Just, uh, All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, and I thank you for these men, and I thank you, Father, that uh, for your son, who you've uh, shown beyond a shadow of doubt, uh, is the good of God, and that he was victorious over the devil, and that he came down in our in our in our sinful world among the wild beasts and accomplished the work of salvation. And that no matter what Satan threw against him, that he was victorious and could not be defeated. And because of that, we can draw him. Because ultimately, because of his victory, we can. Bless our hearts now and bless our hearts now. Prepare for worship and let us uh, focus in upon you and worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.